If you're enjoying this podcast and it's helping your writing, make sure to check out our weekend intensive classes coming up. We have a TV drama weekend intensive with Steve Moulton, Saturday and Sunday, March 30th and 31st from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. And you can attend in person or online. We also have a weekend intensive write your screenplay class for screenwriters starting with me on March 9th and March 10th. So come check out those classes. They are going to be awesome and enjoy the podcast. Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay podcast. On this podcast, rather than reviewing movies like critics, two thumbs up, two thumbs down, loved it or hated it, we're going to look at movies in terms of what we can learn from them as screenwriters. We're going to look at good movies and bad movies, movies that we loved and movies that we hated. For an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as a full transcript, please visit our website, writeyourscreenplay.com. Today on the podcast, I have a special guest, Steve Moulton. Steve is a mentor here at Jacob Kruger Studio. He's also just an extraordinarily amazing human being and writer. He's a Pulitzer Prize nominee. He's a former HBO and Showtime executive. He just did a movie with Frank Pugliese. He's a general badass. And today we're going to be talking not just about how cool Steve is, but we're going to be talking about TV drama because we're living really in a golden age of television. Steve comes with vast experience. He teaches our TV drama weekend that's coming up as well as our ProTrack mentorship program. So I'd love for you to kind of start by talking a little bit about how is it different today than it was a few years ago and and where are the opportunities now? That's a great question. And as you know, we are in yet another golden age. I guess we could probably describe it as the third golden age because there was the initial one in the 50s and then in the 70s and 80s, of course, cable transformed everything. And then there was suddenly a thousand different platforms and that of course has given rise to an immense number of shows at any given moment it's also given rise to web series to the short form which we haven't seen before it opens up a vista for writers of a kind that no other form of writing does partly because the appetite is amazingly large for all these companies everybody wants to brand themselves and the most secure way to brand themselves is to create their own series there's never been more opportunity for original voices Yeah, it's very exciting. And talk about writing feature-length drama is much different than writing television drama. There's the rub. That's the fascination. And you and I have had experience in both worlds. I always sort of like to position this process of who's the writer in society at this point. And one of the fascinating things, if we go back to our old Greco-Roman heritage, is that we discover pretty quickly this very intimate relationship between the law in a democratic society and the storytellers. And that all began, as you know, you're sitting there smiling because you know all too well. It began with something that the Greeks called the Aegon. When the Greeks 2,500 years ago were trying to train people into the system of jurisprudence, they would bring all these people down to Athens once a year, and they would talk to them about how you serve on a jury and what the law was and why this was a cornerstone of the free society and etc. But then at night, they would put on tragedies and what we now know as the origin of sitcoms. Strangely enough, we don't think of sitcoms as being 2,500 years old, but they were. They are. 
in the middle of the dramas and tragedies, we have about 22 of them left for us to look at, but in the middle of each of these dramas, there was something called the Aegon, which was really like intermission, where the people who had come down to learn about their judicial system would debate the kinds of issues that had been raised in the drama itself. And it was out of the Aegon that the idea of the protagonist and the antagonist were born. And what we often assume is that the protagonist is inherently the good guy. But the reality, all the way back to the Greeks, was it wasn't really the good person. It was the moral contestant. It was the person who was sort of caught between. One of the best evocations of that in older literature is Hamlet. This guy is a moral mess. You know, he's back and forth between this choice and that choice and to be or not to be and yada yada. But if you flash forward to somebody like Henry Hill in Goodfellas, and Henry is a guy I actually encountered in meetings at Showtime, if you can believe, when he was in the Witness Protection Program, Henry Hill despite the fact that the normal world for Goodfellas is a skeevy, funky, deadly world, Henry Hill is ultimately the one that's just a little bit better than the rest of them. And that's why Scorsese, of course, drives the whole film with his voiceover because he's the moral contestant. He's never quite exactly sure if he is who he thinks he is. And of course, his identity is completely flushed into the open by the end of the movie. So I always try to encourage my students not to think in terms of these strict boundaries of good and evil, but to realize we're in a protracted journey by the protagonist. And that then, of course, takes us in what is the difference between movies and and TV. You and I have talked a lot about this. The primary difference between movies and TV for me is that a movie is about a character who changes. And television is about a character who procrastinates. (laughs) A movie is a journey. A movie is a product. A movie is all built on an outcome. And it's driven mainly by imagery and the relationship of character to action. Because what we're really dealing with is rates of change. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. A series is really about a world. It's about a habitat. It's not really about a product or an outcome. It's about a world in which characters wrestle with these moral quandaries. I always try to help students look upon their world as just kind of, it's a moral arena. And we have all kinds of postmodern ideas about the word moral, but when you get right down to it, all the way back to the Greeks and right up to today, we are storytelling creatures. We are constantly looking at stories and thinking about stories and reading them and watching them. And the reason is that we are protagonists in our own moral universe, right? Everyone's wrestling with trying to do the best they can in yeah, some way. exactly. And trying to sort out the options and sort out, well, what if I did that? You know, we're always, in our own minds, you know, we're always projecting, like, well, what if I made that choice? The great thing about films and television and books is it's full of people who are making the kinds of choices that we wouldn't necessarily want to make, but we get to see the repercussions. It's a safe way to experience our own moral dilemmas and work through them. You know, I've thought about this a lot. I feel like all... Why am I not surprised? All... <laughs> screenwriting, all TV writing, it's all political. Yeah. And it's all sociopolitical, right? <laughs> like the act of doing it is a sociopolitical act, right? We're mm-hmm. actually looking inside ourselves, mm-hmm. looking at our society, mm-hmm. trying to understand some aspect of it. But it's also political in that regardless of what you put out there, you are the debate at the water cooler the next day. Yeah. You are raising the questions that are going to be debated throughout exactly. the world. 
That's exactly right. When a student comes to me and says, well, these are the themes and this is exactly the way it rolls and et cetera, et cetera. I think that's morally very self-secure. It's not going to really be a very interesting movie or an interesting series. I want somebody to be talking to me about their own complex problems with a set of questions that they can't quite answer. Well, we talk about engine all the time when it comes to TV writing. In a way, the engine is the unresolvable question. If you have a question and you can resolve it, if you know the answer, if you know the thing that would save the world, then the truth is you don't have a series. It's the unresolved questions Mm -hmm. that it is the constant search to try to understand the truth. Absolutely. And that's why the world is such a vastly important thing when you're starting to conceive of a TV drama, because what you're really talking about is a world as a moral arena, as a moral universe. And you think about the specific kinds of choices. You know, I always say that writing a movie or making a movie is really about a journey. And writing a TV series is about living in a building, you know, with all these people living in all of these different apartments. So the world of the show and the characters within it is really the sort of essence of this. I want to talk about Engine in a few minutes, absolutely, but that's precisely it. The array of characters that populate that world Just look at the genres of television. They're habitats. It's hospitals. It's prisons. It's the legal system. It's families. It's urban tribes or it's conspiracies. You know, these are agreed upon sort of social entities and in a way political entities, right? The politics of the self. And within that particular world are a certain set of moral choices that don't necessarily exist outside that world. But they're definitely having things in common with those worlds. One of the most wonderful things that you talk about and that I think is so germane here is that particularly if you're thinking about movies being about a character who changes and TV about a character who procrastinates, is that always brings us back to the holdfast ego and the nascent ego, doesn't it? Yeah. It's wild how that keeps happening again and again. And Can re- you run through that real quick for anyone who's listening okay, who doesn't yeah. know what they are? The hold fast ego is the ego you encounter when you wake up in the morning, you look in the mirror, you're putting on your makeup or you're shaving, and you look in the mirror and you say, okay, that's Steve Moulton. And Steve is this and Steve is that. And it's wonderfully predictable how he's like that. And I know what he wants every morning. And I know where he has come from. And I know he's been a jerk and a flop and a this and that. And I also know he's fantastic and is on his way somewhere. But it's basically the guy that you are familiar with and the part of you that just wants to keep things steady. It's what we call the normal world at the beginning of a movie. That's the hold fast ego. The nascent ego is that part that lies in all of us that either secretly kind of wants to change or is at least able to change if sufficiently provoked or inspired or is absolutely unable to change and is living with the consequences so to speak it's all about the part of us that wants to change in a movie basically you got that hold fast ego at the beginning of the world you got the normal world and down in there is the nascent ego and you know when we talk about that water or cooler effect yes you're talking about the politics of the self you're also talking about the fact that you as writer are basically a moral provocateur you're going to start to torture the protagonist, as you love to say. And what you're torturing is that very self-certain part of us that says, this is who I am, and it ain't going to change. No, nothing's going to change my world, right? But the nascent ego is lying inside in a feature film and is ready to be provoked and thrown into action. And by the end of Act 1, you actually have to have them in motion and they got to be proactive and etc. But if a series is about a character who doesn't change but procrastinates, the nascent ego is just not going to be awakened as 
quickly. And the whole dynamic of story engine for me is the nascent ego seems to start to want to change, you know, and the nascent ego begins to grow within the whole fast ego. And it's going to overthrow the apple cart, you know. But they consistently retreat back into themselves the way we actually all do in our lives, right? We, we don't yeah. want to change that quickly. I always say that movies don't take place in a world of realism. In real life, you have that little part of you that wants to be a writer. And you go, you know, maybe next week I'll start my script. And then you're like, you know, maybe next month, mm-hmm. maybe next year. <laughs> and, you know, maybe in two years, maybe when I finish school, maybe when my mm-hmm. kids are grown up. Right. And that's real life. And then eventually you're like 70 and you're like, here I am at Jacob Kruger <laughs> Studio. Right. And, and we love the procrastinators, too. Um, <laughs> I don't care when you come in. Yes. But that's but that's real life. Right. Yeah. You know, in real life, we go, mm-hmm. I need to date a different kind of person. I guess mm-hmm. I'll stay in my relationship. Okay, I finally break out of my relationship. Mm-hmm. Nason Digo, I'm going to date someone completely new. And then you're like, oh, shit, I just dated the same person again, right? <laughs> That's real life. That's realism. Yeah, in right. realism, we change over 100 years. Yeah. And we do change. If you think about who you were when you were in high school versus who you are today, mm-hmm. hopefully you've changed. But the change is very slow. Yeah. In movies... The change is very fast. It's like we cut all that procrastination out in between. We cut out all the repetition and we force the character to change real fast. Or there are some movies where you test, which we won't get into today, that work actually more like series where you test the inability to change. Yes. In a series, it's still naturalism. It's still heightened. It's not happening in realism. It's happening in a heightened version that feels like realism. But Even though it's happening in that naturalistic world, the change happens in a way that is much more like real life, Mm -hmm. which is that the characters sit in who they are for a longer period of time. And yet you're constantly provoking the audience into hoping and thinking that they will change. Yeah, and provoking the character too. Exactly. And that's why it's so very important to know your protagonist and to really get into that great sense of the hierarchy of needs in that character but also to understand that there's a shadow side to each of those needs and to constantly bring that character up to the threshold of changing but not ultimately opting to do so there's a great thing that harold bloom says about shakespeare what was it about shakespeare that was so incredibly you know it was such a breakthrough in the history of human storytelling and what he said is wonderfully simple and also really complex he basically said shakespeare created hundreds of protagonists we had never seen before who had one great thing in common they overheard themselves and changed (laughs) isn't that wonderful that they overheard them so you think about well what how are all the different ways in which we overhear ourselves in a movie or in television you use dreams that way you use people reflecting on something that somebody just said to them and saying i'm not that and then thinking later that "Mm, perhaps you are you use point of view you use that wild and interesting difference between the public self and the private self if you think about Don Draper, for example, this is a guy whose whole thing is about esteem. If you think of Maslow's five needs, his thing is esteem. He wants to have power, influence. He wants to be perceived as a man of the world, man in control of his destiny. He's very externally motivated, etc. So what's the shadow side of that esteem? Shame. The guy's completely shame-based. The writers tell us that in those first few episodes. He's not even who he says he is. He's taken on another identity. He grew up as the son of a woman who had to turn tricks during the Depression and who inculcated him with a shadowy view of himself. What do the writers do? While Don, again and again and again, seems to sort of be at peace with himself. He leaves a marriage finally, and he finds a woman with whom he doesn't have to cheat. And he cheats on her because the shame is irrepressible. The shame is always coming back to life just when we think he's about to change. 
And that's one of the wonderful things about series and its lifelike quality. When is the guy going to overhear himself and change? You know, is it going to be reflected in this new relationship with this new woman who says, Don, you're not that, you're this. Think about it. That's one of the wonderments of that long-form experience of series, I think. You were using the word procrastinate before, but what you're actually talking about is an extraordinarily active form of procrastination. These characters are not sitting around not doing things. Mm -hmm. These characters are making huge choices, Mm -hmm. but they consistently don't make the choice they know they need to make. Yes, right. They keep getting themselves in deeper. But we can't really invest in them if we don't see them trying to get out of whatever that morass is. So it's a little bit of a sleight of hand by the writer. No, they're not passive. They're not just people who sit there and won't change. You know, they say, beware of a character who's their own worst enemy. How do you invest in a character like that? And beware even more of a character who's so passive that things are always just happening to them. They have to be taking action. We want to see them exerting that hold fast ego and admitting the presence of the nascent ego. But if the nascent ego wins, the series is over. Yeah. You look at Walter White in Breaking Bad. White makes a very, very important moral choice. In terms of situational ethics, he basically says, I'm dying. I need as much money as I can. Where am I going to get it? I'm going to have to be a criminal. He tries to sort of hold on to that morally righteous agenda, but the reality of leaving a life of crime is in order to do that, he keeps making all of the worst possible decisions until some people who were big devotees of the show couldn't invest in Walter anymore. Their allegiance sort of moved over to Jesse because... Walter had fallen so deep into his worst self that they couldn't root for him anymore. Yeah, I think that's one of the really interesting things about the setup of that show. And this would be a great transition to start to talk about pilots. Because Mm. if you look at Breaking Bad, all the real change happens in the pilot. It happens so fast, Mm -hmm. right? It's unbelievably fast. Mm. We go from mild-mannered science teacher to crystal meth dealer in an hour. It is so incredible how they do that. And then what's interesting is it's it's all nascent ego, nascent ego, Mm -hmm. nascent ego, driving this change. I got to provide for my family. I failed to provide for my family. Now I'm going to die. I have to make a new choice. Nascent ego, he keeps on making more and more horrific choices, trying to do the right thing, Uh ends up manipulating his own worst student towards his addiction. It's incredible, right? (laughs) Yeah. And this is all the pilot. And then when we get to the end of the pilot, we actually get back to this place of holdfast. And now it becomes about, I've got to keep the crime empire going. What I love about Breaking Bad is it's actually built around the model of entrepreneurship, right? It's a startup. Yeah, it's a startup. Exactly. And by season five, they're a multinational. And the enemy is in the startup years is going to be the local drug dealer. And by the end, it is not even the franchise it's the conglomerate that owns the franchise yeah it's such a fascinatingly built show but really what happens for about three episodes is the engine is he's never gonna tell his wife and then just like in real life right we hold on as long as we can and eventually it becomes boring not watching him tell his wife so eventually it's like okay he's gonna tell his wife because we can't keep so nascent change and then it becomes about how does she break bad Because if she breaks good, now we're messed up. And it has to keep on putting pressure on their relationship. If they become Bonnie and Clyde, the show's over. It's a little bit like Tony Soprano and his wife. It really is, right? So thinking about what your pilot does, what your pilot needs to do to actually be successful is so much harder. You have to provide a blueprint. 
where people watch the pilot and they're able to pitch themselves five episodes just from your pilot. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how do you do that? There's kind of a different DNA to every show. That example of Breaking Bad is a great one because you basically have somebody who's leading a double life and they're going to try to keep the nascent ego and the hold fast ego as far apart as they possibly can. Just as Don is trying to keep it a secret that he's not Don, he's actually somebody else. And yes, when it gets boring, five, six, eight episodes in season one, finally everybody kind of finds out and then it's anticlimactic because as it happens, the whole driving wheel of the show is turning things into something they're not, making these cheap, chintzy, crazy little products into something desirable. The fascinating DNA of a pilot for me is that because it's all about characters in a world, you want to be able to touch as quickly as possible on that dynamic between the holdfast and the nascent ego in the principal characters of the show. That then, of course, gets into the how. You know, the how we talk about a lot around here, but there's also a how in terms of how people suppress the nascent ego. So that's something you really need to evince in the pilot because that's the replicable units we talk about. That battle between the nascent and the holdfast ego is constantly in play. And you want to put as many of those key internal conflicts, the internal antagonist becomes so very important in television precisely because of the holdfast nascent dynamic. You need to be able to, to make that world as vivid as you can and to show what's uniquely interesting about the moral arena that results from that show and who the people are that are trying to negotiate that moral labyrinth within the show. We want to get a glimpse of the thing that either they don't know about themselves or they do know and they're holding on to. It's critical to always be thinking the beginning of any story what's broken in the character why are we starting now and what is broken within them because it's that fissure that runs through the character that is the chasm between their best self and their changing self or their steady self and their changing self in my write your screenplay class we always talk about like the me draft the audience draft the producer draft and the reader draft like these different ways that we focus our energy Mm -hmm. as we write Mm -hmm. and what i love that you're doing is you're going like so I started with a kind of a producer draft note, right? The idea that your pilot needs to be a blueprint for the series. A person should be able to read your pilot and go, I can imagine what's going to happen in episode 25. Mm-hmm. I can imagine what's going to happen in season six. I don't have to be brilliant. I can just read this pilot and I can pitch it to myself. Mm-hmm. And what I love is you took it back to the me draft, right? You took mm-hmm. it back to like, where does this really come from? This comes from there's something broken in the character. There's something that needs to heal that the character can't heal. Mm-hmm. That all this structure, all this plot, and all this commercial stuff really just grows out of that wound. Exactly. The fracture. The lack of self-knowledge or the secrecy because you have self-knowledge. Every single character has a different relationship to their shadow, so to speak, right? It's funny because we're both the kids of psychotherapists. So you go back there and you say, yeah, those were good kind of conceptual it's ways the to same think about job. narrative, right? <laughs> same gig. Uh, it's just that you're not sitting across from your uh, patient. You're just broadcasting to them out there in the universe. Yeah, and you don't have to heal them. The psychotherapist's <laughs> right. job is to bring the client to a place of peace. I always say this is like the difference between what I do and my mom does, right? Like she has to bring the character to a place a piece i need to mess up the character <laughs> and force them to make worse and worse choices mm-hmm. and then if i'm writing a comedy eventually they will find a place of peace right. through yeah. that and if it's a tragedy they will yeah. not and if it's an indie film they'll find both or right. something more complicated <laughs> <laughs> and, and we writing a series won't really know how all of that's going to play out until they tell us the show is canceled yeah <laughs> you have to come up with a resolution which is part of what's interesting about the limited series notion because it's a hybrid of the two and i'm actually now rolling out a pilot in 
the Bible for a series that's set in New York in the 1920s. But it's so critical to me to sort of understand what I think of in terms of the four dimensions of conflict. And this isn't really relevant to the seven kinds of conflict that we talk about in terms of genre, you know, man versus self, man versus technology, etc. But there are a couple of ways in which they overlap. It's really important in the pilot and in the series in an ongoing way to be thinking first about the internal antagonist, and that's what we've been talking about primarily now. There's an internal protagonist. There's the best of the self. There's, I'm about esteem, or I'm about love, or I'm about comfort, or I'm about self-fulfillment. But there's also, what are the obstacles within each of those aspects of the characters? You know, what's broken? What is the thing that always screws them up just when they think they're going to finally kind of evolve to the next step in their lives? So that internal antagonist is particularly important in television. You know, they say that intimacy is privacy, shared. TV is really driven a lot by dialogue. Its forerunners are not so much film as they are the novel and radio. You almost listen to a television show as much as you watch it, and you participate in it primarily in your home. There's an inherent intimacy to it. So understanding and feeling and sensing the internal antagonist is a lot easier to achieve in television because it takes place almost entirely in close-up. Right? You're not shooting giant wide shots in television very much. It's really right in your face, literally. So I really need to get in touch with what's broken. What are the multiple internal antagonists in a person? And then obviously you want to establish in the pilot, what's that next dimension? Because the internal gives the thing its depth. It gives it its psychological resiliency that can go on and on. And it really defines the how of the character. The interpersonal conflict, of course, gives it its momentum. You want to establish pretty clearly in the pilot who are the people out there in this world that are always going to mess with the protagonist. Who are they and why? Get a glimpse of why they are the antagonists. But then there's also the societal antagonist. And that larger dimension really needs to be paid a special kind of attention to as well. And maybe because television isn't as plot-driven as films are, the primary forms of antagonism for me are the internal and the societal. And maybe there's also a spiritual or a philosophical dimension to it. I was watching Terry Malick's film Tree of Life the other day. And all four of those are at work in that film. And the spiritual antagonist is suddenly there in a way that you don't see in very many other films. Yeah. And that was a film that was born out of the suicide of his own brother. So it was born out of a broken place in himself. Those are really important things. The societal antagonist, of course, is what creates the world. It's the membrane around the show. What part of society am I in? That's the sort of surrounding membrane of it for me. So all three of those primary dimensions of antagonism need to be happening in the pilot. I always think of them as beautiful and broken places that we can write from our wounds Mm-hmm. And we can also write from whatever is most beautiful in us. The trick is that we have to be willing to torture either side of us. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Because the worst part of you is tortured by the best part of you, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It's not only the inverse. Whether you're writing feature or a series or a pilot or a miniseries or a play or a poem, it doesn't matter. That All this stuff starts with internal work. Mm. And that's why your audience actually gets to have a catharsis. They get that catharsis because you did and Mm -hmm. it's also why writing doesn't have to trap you a lot of artists have this like false idea well if i ever got better personally i wouldn't have anything to write from but it's actually exactly the opposite when you make peace with that broken part you also meet a new beautiful part that you can take on a journey and then you meet a new broken part that you didn't realize was there and you know this work (laughs) 
is a constant act of self-exploration. Yeah. What's nice about TV is you get not just multiple episodes, multiple seasons yeah. to just keep on peeling the layer of that mm -hmm. onion to keep on looking deeper and deeper at, at yeah. these characters. Yeah, because what you're really talking about is <clears throat> the writer who gets over that sort of woundology superstition about being a writer and does get better in their own lives yeah. has finally overheard themselves and changed. Exactly, <laughs> and that's what we're building yeah. in a series that ends the series. In life, you get to keep going. That's a nice yeah. thing. When Walter White <laughs> finally admits he likes it, yeah. the series ends. Mm -hmm. In life, you get to admit you like it and you get to keep going. <laughs> That's the biggest difference yeah. between series. You get a spinoff. <laughs> You're about to teach a TV drama weekend for mm -hmm. us. That is something that I've been begging Steve Moulton to do for the last two years. And I'm so grateful for you giving us the time to do that. It's the challenging thing about hiring great writers is they have greatly busy schedules but i'm so happy that you're teaching that class and i would love for you just to talk a little bit about how that weekend is going to work how it's going to be put together and what students are going to learn i'd be happy to it's a little like putting lightning in a bottle some of it will really involve the sort of rudiments we've been talking about today i really want people to come to the class with first of all a couple of news stories that fascinate them in terms of them thinking that these seem like they might make good series and I want them to come with at least one kind of throwaway idea that they're not that committed to or not that protective of that we can also workshop. The beauty of sort of dialogic teaching, in the first day, we're really going to mix it up. We're going to work with some of this raw material from out in the world. We're going to think about a protagonist that compels us. We're going to sit down together and do a brain meld to create a couple of protagonists together. It's sort of like a Frankenstein experiment. We're going to take all the best and worst of it. We're going to talk about the hierarchy of needs and we're going to begin to zero in on a protagonist or two and we're going to assemble one psychologically and then we're going to project this person into a field of reference that begins to set out what are the sorts of obstacles that would most mess with that character in a sense and then what would be the ongoing complications? How does the engine fold out of that first portrait of the protagonist? As Aristotle and so many have said, plot comes out of character. The world we're creating is going to be manifested by these characters. So that first day will primarily be based in exactly those kinds of dialogic experiments. You know, what goes to Vegas stays in Vegas in the sense what goes that first day, whatever kind of personal stuff you bring to the table stays at the table because... I want people in the class who are struggling with themes. I want to throw some of those themes out on the table and help them to get comfortable with the fact that this is about inner turbulence. It's not about inner certainty. <laughs> so that's really how day one is going to roll. Day two, we're going to begin to refine. We're going to work a little less dialogically and more collaboratively. We are going to start to test out an idea that you have that you think would make a good series. On the basis of what we've learned the day before, we're going to sort of do a little bit of a stand and deliver. Tell us you know, who this person is. Tell us what the routine obstacles are that they face. Are they primarily internal? Are they interpersonal? So we're going to take an idea of our own and begin to road test it. And in the course of road testing it, in the course of using our co-artists around us to give us feedback and help us refine that idea, and carry it forward, we will also inherently be laying out what a Bible is. This is not a course about how to write a Bible. It's really a course about how you prepare yourself imaginatively to create a world and populate it, to create a television habitat and populate it and to understand that the relationship between those two things 
determines what the engine will be, determines its potential longevity. What you may find by the end of the workshop is, man, I came in there with an idea that was better than I thought it was. I can guarantee you that that will be the case. If someone has a web series, is that something they could develop in that class as well? They could certainly, because that's basically a mini version of what we'll be dealing with when we talk about series. So I would encourage people, if they have a web series idea, to bring it in. The wonderful thing about web series, first of all, it's a wonderful way commercially to put yourself on the map. Because we have these amazing tools, new writers for film or television now have an array of possibilities that bypass all of the barriers to entry with web series that young bands in the 60s found by discovering the FM radio frequency. You know, nobody wanted to put them on AM. The technology had kind of atomized enough that a thousand different bands could thrive on FM. Web series are the equivalent of the analog for that to me. A thousand different small stories can thrive. You can write them, you can act them, you can direct them, you can edit them, and you can put them into international distribution by yourself. So much so that the Writers Guild now, if you get something like on a regular basis, 100 hits for your web series, they're going to let you into the guild because they know that's the future. It's such an exciting time to be a writer. Yeah, so absolutely. So let me give the dates on that class. That TV drama weekend intensive is Saturday and Sunday, March 30th and 31st from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern time both days. And you can come here in the city if you want. You can also attend online like all of our classes. We've got a whole array of mics in the ceiling and you can see and hear and participate and we can see you. And it's a pretty amazing setup. It's just like being in the room. So come check out that class. You can learn more about it at writeyourscreenplay.com. And thank you so much, Steve, for being here and sharing your time with us. Thank you, Jacob. It's always fun to talk. Let's just keep gabbing. Let's keep doing it. Yeah, come back. (laughs) Come down and see us, ladies and gents. Exactly. You won't be bored. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. For a complete transcript, please visit our website, writeyourscreenplay.com slash podcast.